All right. Uh, have we done Psalm 19? Psalm 19, have we done that one yet? I don't think we have. Um, Psalm 19, pop that open. Let's give that, a, let's give that a go here and we'll see what happens. Psalm 19, I don't think we have done it yet. Gotcha. Well, I think about a lot of things, and then I forget. Um, oh, I was going to tell you guys something, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah, that's what you say. Could be. Hey, you all heard the news? Glad they're all interested in the class, Jan. You can see how this is going right now. Uh, you know, we do have parent-teacher conferences for all of you guys. So you all have, you all have time slots. Yeah, I know. That'll claim you? <laughs> yeah. I know. Hey, you all heard about N.T. Wright. Did you hear the big news? N.T. Wright has resigned as the Bishop of Durham, and uh, he's going to go teach at St. Andrews in Scotland full-time. He's got a chair there. So I, I uh, it's, it's freaking huge, actually. Yeah, it, uh, this, you know, they, they ran all the, every year they do, like they do in the United States, they run these um, tests to sort of see where different universities are. And last year it was Oxford was number one, and Cambridge and Scott, or, or Cambridge and St. Andrews were tied for the second universities in all the UK. And the, the new vice chancellor, who's a woman, if you get the Wall Street Journal, there was an insert about her. She's from Ireland, I think, taught in the United States for a long time, and is, and is a feminist, but in the best sense of the word. So she's now over at, at St. Andrews. She came out and said, we look Cambridge and Oxford in the eye now, which didn't go over so well at Cambridge and Oxford. Um, but in some sense, they do now, because N.T. Wright is probably, probably the biggest New Testament scholar in the world right now. I mean, he's bigger than about anybody else, and he's taken a chair now at St. Andrews. He's resigned as, as bishop. So that is, that's a huge deal. I, just, I sent him an email the other day, and he responded within about six hours and said, yeah, I'd love, I said I'd love to have a time to meet when I'm over there. And uh, so we'll see what happens. But that should be fun. It suddenly puts St. Andrews on a global map. They've always been on the map in the U.K., but now globally they're sort of – they said uh, – applications for the PhD program have gone up exponentially in the past two weeks. Like every year they get about, you know, three or four hundred applications. They accept about 15 or 20 people. And they said they've already had hundreds of people inquire about studying with N.T. Wright. So it'll, it'll be good for the pocketbook. They, when I was over there, they said St. Andrews is the only major player in the U.K. system that doesn't have an endowment, which is strange. Like Cambridge... I don't know if you know this, Cambridge owns a ton of property in New York City, down by Fifth Avenue. So that's where they get tons of money, and you know they send it back over, and Oxford's the same way. And they said St. Andrews is the only university in the UK, out of the major players, that doesn't have an endowment. So you know, getting 20 or 30 more PhD students is a big deal. It's 10,000 bucks a year for tuition. And well, you'd think, yeah. I mean, seriously. I know. I know. I mean, it's the, oldest, it's the oldest university in Scotland and the second oldest in the UK. It's like from 1417. You'd think they'd have an endowment by now. But it is what it is. What are you going to do? All right, Psalm 19. We just waited for you to come in. I was, I was killing time. Yep. Psalm 19. I don't think we've done it yet, so that's good. Ah, let's see. Let's read it once and just tell me, just, you know, this is like you know, a free association. Tell me what comes to mind as you, uh, as you listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork or the expanse. You know, at, at creation it says he created the expanse. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So just, you know, free association. What did you hear? What comes to mind as you hear the psalm? Wow, that's good. All of that. Okay, I'm going to draw, then you can help me fill in the blanks, because as I said to someone the other day, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay? Sorry? Oh, okay. Expanse, too? Okay. Keep going. I'm just going to throw away the marker. You made those for your birthday, by the way. In between, there's redemption. Okay? We'll make that in red. There's redemption. I thought you were going to talk about Sierra Nevada beer, but okay. So creation and you. Can you tell me a little more? Well, tell me, someone else, if they got more free association. Yeah, Donna. Okay. We'll put that right over here. Blood pressure starting to go up. Yes, right. Good. So stop right there. What you've just said, does that what she just described there, does that sound more like, now think in your own Lutheran terms, law or gospel? Gospel, okay? Now, when you hear the word law in the text, what do you presume you should be hearing? Yeah, you sinner, you know? Get, you know, turn around, and what are you doing, and why have you done this? And what's the Hebrew word there? If you had to take a guess, what would it be? There are a couple different words for law. This is the big law. This is not the you darn sinner. Torah. And Torah, you know, uh, more specifically, is the first five books of the Old Testament. Matthew, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You remember uh, Fulton Sheen? You all know who Fulton Sheen is, right? You young people may not. Rachel, do you know who Fulton Sheen is? Yeah, good, okay. I can remember as a kid, my dad was, uh, he wasn't anti-Catholic, but he was very Lutheran. But I can remember... Getting up early on Saturday mornings, because that's the kind of kid I was, 5, 6 a.m., and uh, I know, very strange, be out playing, bouncing the basketball by like 7.30, and my mom would yell at the window, put the ball away, it's Saturday morning, but it is what it is. I can remember coming down. It's true. Uh, But getting back to Fulton J. Sheen, (laughs) you remember when he, uh, I don't know if you know this, all black and white. He had like a, it was on Sunday nights, wasn't it? On ABC or NBC at prime time. It was black and white, yeah. But you remember he won a, a, an Emmy or an Oscar? What do people on TV win? 
Emmy. They won an Emmy. And he gets up and he says, I, this is what I hear. He gets up and says, I'd like to thank all my writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> and the place sort of erupts in laughter because he's up with you know, all the great TV stars and he wins, this, he wins this Oscar. So anyways, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, uh, narrowly, narrowly, the law can be defined as what? Anything that's sort of against you, right? But broadly speaking, law is actually Torah. And Torah, more technically, is not law, but it means story. Okay? So the first five books of the Bible, this is why in Psalm 1, the psalmist says, um, the law of the Lord, what does he say? Sorry. Perfect, that's right. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The word for law there is Torah. His delight is in the Torah of the Lord. Tell me, how many of you delight in someone hammering you, you know, you're a darn sinner and you shouldn't have done this and you shouldn't have done that? Or how many of your kids enjoy when you say, you didn't get a good grade on your test, you've got to study more? Or stop coming in after the streetlights come on? Or don't ride your bike out there? How many of your kids delight in that? Yeah, exactly. That's law in the old Lutheran narrow sense. You know, by God, I'm going to beat it out of you. Torah is not that way. Torah is a story. And the story of Torah, at least in the first five books, is primarily the story of redemption. Because what does the Lord do? He creates. What then happens? Man falls. And what does the Lord do instantly? As soon as man falls, he enacts what? Yeah, a promise, and and more than a promise. The Lord never has sort of abstract promises. Promises are always attached to plans. From the very moment that he speaks to Eve and enacts this promise, he is enacting the plan. And the plan is to bring his people back to Eden. And you see this all throughout. One time he sends a flood, and he says, oh, gosh, I'll just start over. But I'm going to save eight people. Why does he save eight people? Of course, unless you saw Noah's remarkable journey, then he saved 40 people. But uh, we'll let it go, because, you know... A Lutheran wrote it, so we'll just pretend it didn't happen. Why does he save eight people? Eight is the number that has no end. He says, my creation will carry on again. And then he circumcises young boys to make him part of the covenant. And then he doesn't kill Isaac. And then he leads his people out of Egypt. And the great transition is out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the Promised Land, and suddenly get to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the Lord has wholly and fully redeemed his people. Torah is a story of redemption. So when the psalmist says, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, what he says there is, the Torah of the Lord is perfect. The story of the Lord is perfect. His redemption is perfect. It's not law like you think of it. It's not Ten Commandments in a courtroom where you know the guy's going to jail. That's not what the Lord is saying here. There are times when he says that. This is the law, and you haven't followed. But this is not one of those cases. Okay? So uh, I guess I'm pushing you to see, as you know, every word can be said two ways. I'm pushing you to see Torah primarily as a gospel word. Okay? Primarily as a gospel word, meaning it's for you and not against you. That makes sense? That's what the psalm is talking about. Now, Carol very, uh, very helpfully sort of gave us the upside-down triangle. Again, I had no idea what she was talking about to start, but I do now. Um, I wonder why you put redemption in the middle. What are you trying to do there? Because here's what I, here's what I see. Yeah. It starts with creation. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I just thought maybe there was it was it was there was more to it than I don't want to say more developed. I just thought there was more to it than that. That's good. Good. Let me ask you this: How does the Lord reveal Himself to people? How does He do it? Good. So we have some Lutherans and some nominal Lutherans and maybe even some non-Lutherans. That'll be great. This is when the discussion always gets fun. 
I'm just, I'm just posing the question. How does the Lord reveal himself to people? Today, yeah. The Lord, God. Yeah, the Lord God. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You need a paper towel? You okay? So one way, see if this one works, one way would be through nature. Okay? Good. You okay, Betty? What's that? Yes. So then the other side, he reveals himself through nature, and how else? Through his word, but his word became flesh. So, yeah, if you say, yeah, you'd start with Christ. Christ always gets the first word, which is word, which is boiled down to Holy Scripture. The mistake of Lutherans often is, what do they do? Put the Scriptures before Christ. That's the classic Lutheran mistake. And when you put the Scriptures before Christ, what have you done? You become a fundamentalist, is what you become. My blood pressure getting up too high. <laughs> you become a fundamentalist. What do the fundamentalists believe? You believe in the scriptures, and therefore you believe in Christ. Completely upside down. It's backwards. You believe in Christ, and therefore you trust his word. And this is a classic, classic Lutheran mistake, to put the scriptures above Christ. It doesn't mean the scriptures are bad. It just means they're not Jesus. Okay? So, the Lord reveals himself in two ways. Nature, and then also in his word. And we'll use a capital W. Word, which is both Christ and the scriptures. Okay, now. Yes, Donna. How did the apostles know Christ? In fact, it, it, I don't know how you all, you know, you, we all say the scriptures are inspired, meaning the Holy Spirit spoke, and because they're inspired, they're inerrant, they're without error, and because they're without error, they become authoritative for the church. But a major question is, you know, how were they inspired? It wasn't like the Holy Spirit came up to Betty, we'll just pretend you're St. Luke right now, came up to Betty and said, you should write, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Nazareth. And then Luke says, whoa, 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 hold on one second, you're going too fast. Johnson, all down. The angel said to her, Rejoice, you who are greatly favored. Whoa, 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 rejoice. Now, is that really the word you want to use? That's not how the scriptures were written. Well, he didn't. Yeah, exactly. Maybe Latin, because that's the language the devil speaks. I don't know what language he did it in, but that's not what he did. How were the scriptures inspired? They're inspired not because the Holy Spirit speaks into their ear. They're inspired because the apostles knew Jesus. What does Jesus say? Don't worry about what to say in that hour. But when you, can, when you, you know, come in contact with these sorts of things, I will give you the words to speak. How did he give them the words? They remembered all the times they were with Jesus. These are Luke's words. These are Matthew's words. These are Paul's words. Okay? So your question is a good one, Donna. What, what do people do before they have the scriptures? The same thing the apostles did, which is they remember their time with Christ. Yeah, exactly. We don't think that way. Yeah, well... Uh, Misuse doesn't suggest disuse. <laughs> okay? Oh, I try to avoid thinking that way at all times, actually. Yeah, the point is, that presumes that Jesus wasn't around till the Incarnation. Remember what Jesus says to, uh, uh, what Jesus says, in, I think, in John's Gospel, before Abraham was... I am. And you remember, then you've got to think back. Now, this is thinking sort of holistically. Abraham comes, and what does he do? One, he meets Melchizedek, right, who offers up bread and wine. He's a priest without beginning, without ending. Maybe that was when he met Jesus. And he comes, and he has dinner with three people. And what do they do? They have bread, they have wine, they all sit around the table. You've seen these icons. So Jesus was there before the incarnation. I take the point. Many people say that. Well, what about... Well, guess what? He was just as active as he is now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's partly why um, it's unfortunate today, but that's partly why icons were so prevalent. 
We, we look at icons and say you shouldn't worship those. Well, nobody worshiped them in the first three or four centuries before people could ever read. And frankly, even up until the Reformation, the way they taught people was through pictures. And that's why the church fathers have, a, well, St. John of Damascus has this great line where he says, what scripture does with words, icons do with color. That's why if you talk to an iconographer, you'd never say, will you paint me an icon? You write an icon. Yeah. So you're exactly right. There was, that's why, I mean, there was no Bible being passed around for 100 or 200 or 300 years. That's why St. Paul says, how can they believe unless they hear, not read? And if you're an Eastern Orthodox or if you've got friends who are Orthodox, they'll say to this day, no one can come to faith by just picking up the Bible and reading got to crawl in through your ear like it did for Mary. Oh, yeah. Well, when you think back at all the symbols used by the church to try to teach different things, from clovers to triangles to crosses to halos to butterflies, I mean, we think it becomes kitsch for us. You know, you go to, like, uh, precious moments and you buy this kind of stuff. For the early church, it was salvation. So we sort of... We haven't valued those the way maybe we should. Yeah. 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 Right. And partly, um, now this is a bit of an aside, but it gets us back to Psalm 19. Partly what you have at the Reformation, an unfortunate outcome is, because they were battling so many doctrinal issues, Scripture became not a living voice. It became information. And you see this, you see this especially because right around the time of the Reformation, what also came out? The printing press. <laughs> so suddenly you could mass produce these sorts of things which has an informational character to it. So the scriptures became informational, doctrine became informational, all these things became informational instead of Christ. Okay? Now, the question is, you all, I think you all understand how, how Christ reveals himself. He reveals himself where he's promised to be. Where is he promised to be? In his word. And here I'm talking scriptures. Where else? Yeah, so, let's, so he's promised to be at the font. The altar, the pulpit, lectern, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this, I mean, I think it's true, and also in the faithful, in Christians. I mean, if you actually believe you embody Christ, then he's present there as well. Um, I'm giving a paper out on the East Coast in like two weeks to a group of all Roman Catholics. It's going to be fun. I'm the only Lutheran. Now, I'm not letting this go on the radio because someone will find out about it. But my paper is, is trying, it's something like from a Lutheran perspective, trying, the, 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 the uh, conference is all about scripture since Vatican II. And my point is uh, a Lutheran perspective on regaining sort of the sacramental character of scripture, that the Lord actually works by means of his word. But one thing I say in it is Christians actually become a sacrament. When the word hits you, and Jesus resides in you, and you go out into the world, it's actually sacramental just as the font is, the altar is, the pulpit is, the lectern is. Why? Because Christ is present meeting people. So you have to think that way. You yourself are a sacrament. Yes? Well, here's the problem, okay? How are you, Leslie? Glad you came in at the most boring point. It's only going uphill from here, I promise. Here's the problem with what the, the, the catechism answer is. You remember, a sacrament is defined by three things. Instituted by Christ, visible element, offers the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, that's, that's sort of a late definition, an earlier definition by... Yeah, but it's like even later Luther. Early Lutheran is visible means and instituted by Christ. And that's why even the Lutheran confessions say, we don't hesitate to call marriage a sacrament. We don't hesitate to call ordination a sacrament. And of course, you know, Lutherans get a little bit out of shape because in the catechism later then, and I think it's even in the part where 
it wasn't Luther who wrote it. It was people sitting off in St. Louis who wrote it, who said, no, here's a sacrament. Visible means instituted by Christ offers forgiveness. They narrowed the definition. Here's the problem. The problem is when you start with the definition and then try to put things into it, what happens? You have very few examples. Two, possibly three. That's not the way you do theology. So Lutherans, unfortunately, started with the definition. Here's what a sacrament is. Let's see all the places we can find it. Instead of saying, let's look for Christ and what he does, in all those instances, we'll call a sacrament. So more broadly, and this is what's happening today in, in sort of theological and Lutheran circles, more broadly, a sacrament is the divine, okay, so Christ, conveyed or given through matter or through the material. So, in the Eucharist, the matter is bread and wine, and Christ is delivered. In the font, the matter is water, Christ is delivered. Uh, in preaching, the matter is a voice. My vocal cords shake and your eardrum rattles, right? And Christ is delivered. Same thing with you. Your flesh, you come in contact with other people, and you bear the presence of Christ. Okay? So, you know, partly it, there's this great narrowing in definition, and that's actually not helped us a whole lot. Because here's why we narrowed, to try to distance ourselves from other people. It would say, um, it would actually be more along these lines than it would be along the, here are the three points that it has to fit into. They would say, instituted by Christ, that's the divine, and, um, you know, with, with a material element, with matter. And that's why they say, you should just read the section on the sacraments in the Augsburg Confession, where it says, baptism, Lord's Supper, also absolution, and yet we don't hesitate to say ordination and marriage and last rites, all these things can be sacraments or, if not a sacrament, very close. Uh, I mean, it could have been hundreds of years after. It was, I mean, it's in the catechism, but it's in the explanation, which wasn't written by Luther. Yeah. So. I the catechism every morning. So. Not the explanation, no. No, I pray just the first part, not the explanation. You all chuckle like I'm joking. I'm not joking. No, I'm serious. Talk to Luke. <laughs> okay, it was a joke. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, so you all understand this. I think the more difficult one is to understand how God reveals himself in nature. Now, where would you see that? Or have you even thought about that before? Okay, because I'll tell you if you, talk to, if you talk to very conservative Missouri Synod Lutherans, they would say God usually doesn't reveal himself in nature. Or if he does, they would say it's all law. Well, I, hey, I'm not saying anything. It's like, when I, it's like when I said at the pastor's conference, you know, you, you've seen the con Jay Z on HBO, right? You've seen Jay Z, that's liturgy. He sits, throw your hands up, they do it, they listen, there's back and forth. One pastor at the very end, I give him credit for being honest, he says, I've never seen Jay-Z, I've never been to Starbucks, I use a Starbucks reference, and I, but he said, but thank God you mentioned Mary Poppins, because I have seen that. I'm like, where do you live? You've never been to a Starbucks? I know! Yeah? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, so what, what is it then? So you can see it in creation, obviously, but what about creation? Beauty. That was, of course, one of N.T. Wright's four echoes, right? I mean, when you walk outside and you look up, what is it that make, that says to you, there is a God? Because I'll be honest, sometimes, I mean, it could just be my personality, I walk outside and the first thing I say is not, wow, there's a God. There are times, but I can't remember, I mean, I'm trying to think, I'm being honest with you, I can't remember the last time I was sort of, where it was or what I was doing where I sort of said, wow, that, yeah, okay. In my office, out the window? 
Okay. Yeah. Right. Like that raccoon that crawls under my porch every morning? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it is. Really? Oh, wow. Okay, well, there's a uniqueness. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, right. What else? Yeah. 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 Yep. Maybe part of it is we don't give ourselves enough time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just look, just, well, here's what I know about you. You have, sorry, this is going to, you have time. And whenever I see you, you're walking around the city, which is a very good thing, but you have a lot of time to be outside. And you talk to some of the moms who can barely get their kids out of the door in the morning. My guess is when they go outside and they see the rain, they don't think, they think, come on, you know? Like, what is this? Yeah, like, oh, man, my hair is wet and my kid's wet and Emma, go put the, you know, galoshes on it. I'm not doing that, Mommy. And then there's a fight in the driveway. And it's a very different thing. That could be part of it. Yeah. I, yeah, so part of, it is, part of it is contextual. Let me go here and then I'll go there. Go ahead. Right. Right. And I, I, I have trouble in like seeing a raccoon. Yeah. Tell me, God made that raccoon. I'm gonna kill that raccoon. No, you're not. Yeah. He made it, I'm gonna kill it. No, 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 no. You remember in Genesis one, you remember in Genesis one he gives he gives man power over creation. I I'm gonna, he may be a robot. I'll kill it and give it to somebody to eat. Uh, yes, he does. <laughs> the day is surely drawing near. <laughs> he does have purposes. I don't know, but he's going to find himself in a big cage in about a week is what he's going to do. I don't know why he's living under a thing. Yes, perhaps I should. <laughs> Abby, go ahead. Save us from this hour. Yep. Like if we eat at the table and not in front of the TV, that's a good thing. Huh. You're going to start to choke me up. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Right. And some of the more beautiful things in nature, whether it be at a meal or whether it be looking outside on your back or whatever are, you can see, I mean, tell me if you can see this, order. Can you see order in creation? I mean, every day the sun comes up and every day the sun goes down. And some of your best meals are meals where it's not chaotic, but you're sitting down at a table and everybody has a plate, everybody's got their silverware, and everybody's got a drink. You can see also, I think, justice. You can see wrongs being made right in order, correct? Yes. Now, your definition of justice in this instance may be different than mine, but you are right. I know. And you can see wisdom. I mean, there was someone very wise, whether or not you say it was the Lord or not, and I know all of you do, but even your most you know, agnostic, unbelieving friends can say there was someone wise behind this, right? How they did it, we may disagree on, but someone wise was behind this. Um, you can see wisdom. You can see, uh, frankly, you can see truth. 
because the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, had his hands all over it. Right? Yes, you can see power, although power um, sometimes, you know, you have to ask, is that primarily a law word or a gospel word? Is it primarily a good thing or a bad thing? Sometimes it's very good, but you watch like, you wouldn't want a wimpy God, but sometimes when he expresses his power, like when a volcano erupts, that's a very scary thing. Or there's a flood. Or, But you're right, power is very important. Yeah. He sustains. Anything else? Yeah. He makes things new. And I would even say you can see holiness in all of it. You can see sanctity. I mean, when you begin to see that, you know, certain things in creation are actually holy, they bear the image, they bear the marks, you'll treat, you'll, you'll treat creation differently. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yep. There's an organic process to it all, which is very closely associated with the organic process that happens with Christians, right? I mean, the same sort of thing happens with all of us. This, was, this is why yesterday at the morning Eucharist, the text was the parable of the sower. That parable is an organic process. The sower sows, the seed takes root, and then what happens? You, the ground and the seed, bear good fruit. And if any of that doesn't take place, if the sower doesn't sow, the seed doesn't take root, or primarily for Lutherans, you don't bear good fruit, what happens? Everything is destroyed. Same thing with your tree. You know, you don't put a fire under it, the seeds don't drop, there's no new, you know. It's an aberration. It's not the way creation was intended to be. Okay? So you have... Um, so the Lord reveals himself in two ways. Now for you as a Christian, this probably is the primary way you see him. For your unbelieving friends, what would be the primary way? Through nature, right? Uh, or as N.T. Wright said, through beauty. Um, and frankly, justice and spirituality, all that is found in nature. So what you may end up doing is, if you're working with your unbelieving friends, where do you want to start? Yeah, you probably don't want to say to your friend, well, the Word of God says, you know, unless you believe and baptize, you're going to hell. <laughs> that's, probably not, that's probably not a good starting point. <laughs> right? Because one, people are irrational. And two, this is their, this is their realm. This is what they know. Every pagan can walk outside and say, wow, this is a beautiful day. Or isn't it nice the sun came up? That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, that that's the thing. Right. Right. Well, and the problem is, this is not magic. You don't just give someone the book and say, read it, and all of a sudden they're a Christian. I mean, this isn't, the Lord doesn't work by incantation, right? So partly you've got to meet people. This is loving people the way they need to be loved. And this is the thing. How many of you, how many of you saw N.T. Wright when he was down at Wheaton College? You saw it. I think I mentioned it on Sunday. One of his best lines of the whole weekend was at the very end of his first lecture where he talked about Jesus talking to Peter on the beach with the fish. I've said this to you before, I think, where he says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I am your friend, Philios. And he says, no, Peter, do you love me, agape? He says, no, Lord, or he says, yes, Lord, I'm your friend, I'm your Philios. And then the third time, what does Jesus say? Are you my friend? See what he does? He's got a friend, your Jewish friend who plays, vol- his kid playing volleyball, and it's, Jesus says, are you here? Yes, Lord, I'm here. Are you here? Yes, Lord, I'm here. And then finally the Lord says, are you here? Yes, Lord, I'm here. Right? 
and you take it from here and you move them to here. And this takes a heck of a long time. Yes? Yeah, exactly. I don't think I would, I, by nature, I wouldn't start with, by creation, I mean the creative act. You know what I'd start with? Beauty. I'd start with order, wisdom, justice, uniqueness, quiet. You look at how many kids, um, you, should, you should Google up uh, Tizay in France sometime. Thousands of teenage kids go there. And what do they go there for? Quiet and stillness. Or how many kids go to big cathedrals? Why do they go? Beauty. There are things in here young people can relate to. But if you start with, well, isn't this great? The Lord created things in six 24-hour days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. They're like, what are you talking about? And here's the thing. I mean, take this the right way. And if anybody you know, writes the bishop, but it's kind of like evolution. I realize it's wrong, but there are greater sins you've got to deal with before you get to that. Okay? Don't, I mean, the problem, the problem sometimes is we, we pick our thing. Right now in the Missouri Synod, the thing we want to talk about is homosexuality and pornography. Well, guess what? Those are very easy targets. And the other thing is, everybody's talked about that for years, and they're moving on to other issues. Same thing here. Don't just start off with, well, God created everything. If you don't believe that, you're, you know, you're not a Christian. I tell you, there are plenty of Christians who don't believe God created the world in six 24-hour days. Right or wrong, they don't believe it. But that's not the point. Yes. Yes, and th- that's a very good distinction because if you're handing out gospel tracts, do you need any relationship with the person you're talking to? No. What did, what did Lutherans do for years? Evangelism explosion. And what did that mean? You went up and you met, yeah, banged on a door, met a person you've never seen before, and you said, if you died today, where are you going? Law or gospel? Law. Okay? This, in some sense, as your starting point, not as your ending point, as your starting point, requires... No relationship. As Holly helpfully said, this requires, as a starting point, relationship. You actually have to know the person you're talking to. And in some sense, you actually have to be their friend. Well, yeah, and that's why, that's why the catechumenate begins with community. <laughs> we give you a sponsor before we tell you any good theology. Gosh, these are like let me go here, because if I don't go there, she's going to get mad. I'll go there, and then I'll go back to this side. Go ahead, Abby. Okay? And that's very important, because what he's done is he's analyzed the culture and said, what do people need today? They need to have relationship. They're lonely and unloved. It's exactly right. If we, yeah, we, yeah, we as a, as humanity, we're going to be screwed up, as a Missouri Synod will cease to exist. There are not that many people who say, I want to be Lutheran because I think you believe all the right stuff. They come to that. They say, I want to be Lutheran because, gosh, you're nice to me, and you're nice to my kids, and I actually feel part of this place. It's a whole different way of doing church, but it's the way you have to do it today to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Not your job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's not your job. Your job is to bring them in contact with Jesus. And Jesus does the right. One of the best things our district does is this new starts new believers. And one of the best things our bishop says is, uh, you don't do the work. So you got this strange thing going on. you got a whole campaign for new starts and new believers. And yet out of the other side of his mouth, he says, you don't do the work. That's actually very helpful. Because what he's saying is, we got all these things we got to do, but at the end of the day, it's not about you. Yeah, that, 
Bum, 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 bum. Put your hands up. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. That along with the Labouret, just so you know, they sang, just so you know, at the St. Louis Seminary, and I'm going to say it because it was fact. It didn't, I'm not making this up. They had their procession at the, at the uh, Vicarage Vesper service, and they tied streamers to the processional crucifix. And guess what the song was they sang going in? I think it was going in. A labouret. I don't know what it means. I know we sang it once for chapel, and people were like, don't ever sing this again. And you get a bunch of white St. Louis seminary students, packed, singing a labouret. They said it was so slow you couldn't keep up. I mean, that shows you, don't sing something. That's like, you know, don't sing something out of your element. That's not your culture. Don't sing that. So, off the high horse. Yeah, it's still on. I hope they send this down to St. Louis. Send this to St. Louis, Mary. <laughs> hey, it's fact. I'm not making it up. All right, did you have something long ago, far away? Yeah. Yes, because for a long time, we believed the river should flow what direction? All those people should come to our side. I completely agree, which means... These people need to go to this side. Because these people will let anybody be part of the group. These people won't. Now, it doesn't mean it's bad. The church has to have some standard. But for a long time, we always said, if they're believers, they will come to our church. If you build it, they will come. Right? If you build it, they will come. Well, guess what? People aren't coming. So what do you have to do? Maybe they did long ago, far away. Even 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago they did. Because there's a whole different culture. It was based upon a Christian ideal. And they built it with beauty, yeah. So then what happened was people were flooding the church a hundred years ago. Then the church said, look at this, everybody's coming, so we need to build more churches, but obviously people are still going to come no matter what, so let's not put a lot of money into our building, and let's not put stained glass windows, and certainly don't put a crucifix, because that's what the Catholics do. We just want to build this basic A-frame church, don't spend a lot of money, because everybody's coming. Well, those people are either dying or dead. And now people don't want to come. Because people over here want something that the church can't offer. And I'm not even talking about, you know, all the things you think pagans want. Not you, but in general. They want beauty. There's a lot of presumption. Yeah, exactly right. I agree wholeheartedly. So partly, partly why we say you've got to be able to talk about the Christian faith in ten words or less, there's a reason to that. Because it's very easy to stand up like I've done today and just keep going. If you're an unbeliever and you've walked in off the street, you have no idea what we're talking about. So you need to be able to say to people, you know, what does it mean to be forgiven? That's a new start. What does it mean to have faith? To agree. I mean, pick your one-word answer. You've got to have a, you know, that in your back pocket so you can sort of say to people that's what it is. Because you're right, if you give people a, a lecture on what the faith is like, they'll never come back. Someone even said, why are your sermons so short? I said, because people don't want to listen that long, and anybody who walks in off the street can't listen that long. They just have no idea. So we've got to work on those sorts of things, because culture is very different. I mean, how many of you grew up in a Lutheran church where the guy preached for at least 25 or 30 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> Easily. Even I did, and that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah, sometimes longer. And if you grew up in an evangelical church, it was probably longer than that. 40 minutes. And 40 minutes was short. Yeah, I know you love it because you've been a part of the church, but, you know, someone walks in, if I were to preach 40 minutes, the place would start to get up and walk out. <laughs> People walk out when I preach seven minutes. <laughs> well, that's because your dad was a pastor. Your dad, man, he was a postmodern, I guess. Yeah. Right. I think part of the trick, I think this is what you're saying, is we have to find a way to make a big church feel like a small church. And you don't see it in places like Wheaton, where there's a church on every corner. It was the same thing in Fort Wayne when I was at the seminary. There are like 11 Lutheran churches in Fort Wayne. Where you see it is, in other countries, you also see it in the inner city. 
You go to downtown Chicago, and the church is everything for people. That's where kids go so they're not involved with drugs. That's where families go so their kids don't get shot. That's where, when we were out in New York and we were at the Bishop's Church, it was stunning after the Eucharist. Um, every person present, 110 people, stuck around for coffee. Why? Not because they all want to be together. That's part of it. But some of them don't want to go home. Home isn't safe. And we need to see that actually even in a place like Wheaton, it's not that it's unsafe physically, but in some sense it's unsafe spiritually. And we have to find a way for people to be present here so they can be safe and secure and know that this is their home, even if it's six or 700 people. Partly that's logistics, but partly it's creating a community where community actually matters. I mean, I say to all the new members now, if you don't want to be part of a community, if you're coming here just to go to church or just to become a Lutheran, you're coming here for all the wrong reasons. That's not what we're about. We are about that, but first and foremost, we're about community. And that's why the most important thing we do is we have the Eucharist. You can't screw that up. It's community tangibly. <laughs> sermon doesn't always do that. Sometimes a sermon breaks community. Say something stupid, talk about the women's retreat. I remember when I did that. That didn't go over well. I mean, I had 10 or 15 women all peeve. Some still here. I mean, thankfully, you've all shown back up. I, I don't know how you all feel about it, but hopefully through AOR, we've all gotten through all that. But Thank you very much, okay. I mean, but yeah, the Eucharist, that's why it's every day. So that's community. Anything else? Okay. All right, well, um, we'll come back next week. Uh, we probably have a few more weeks left. We'll probably go through the end of May, I think, if that's okay with everybody. No, probably not. Uh, when is that, like the 29th or something? Yeah. So why don't we say we'll go up through we'll go up to the 24th, I think it is. Okay? Do you have any psalms you want to do next week? Or psalm? I mean, this psalm, I know I didn't say it explicitly, but I think you figured it out. The first six verses were all about God revealing himself in nature, and the last, uh, all the verses following were about God revealing himself in his Torah. So those two things go hand in hand. You led that way, and that was helpful. So... I don't. Re I think that does ring a bell, but I don't know if we've actually. Yeah, because I got stuff underlined. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Last week, um, who was it? Mary Lou sent us an email. We did that. This week, I didn't get any, so I picked one. Um, it is so helpful if you guys send us one, just because then we're not, you know, looking all around to find one. Okay. All right, let's pray, and then uh, you can grab your kids and be on your way, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you very much. We'll see you next time.